You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open your app or turn the pages to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. That's what we're going to look at as we continue in our series through Romans. We're back in Romans again. If you're using one of those church Bibles, it's on page 1004. I'm going to pray, and we're also going to pray that we can get through this because I have a 40-minute sermon and 20 minutes to preach it. So we're probably going to be here for 40 minutes. Lord, as I seek to expound and explain and to exhort your word, Lord, give me the ability to do that well and rightly and correctly true to what you've said. Lord, speak to us from your word in terms we can understand. Lord, we know the righteousness of faith speaks, and Lord, I'm asking that you would open ears to hear, that we would hear it today, that we would know how it sounds, that we would recognize your voice and follow you. So God, I'm just seeking humbly your assistance in how I speak, and all of us are speak, humbly asking to hear with the ears that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and read this together. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. It says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is... I'm going to start over. I took my glasses off. I couldn't see up close. <laughs> Sorry, I was lost my place completely. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire of prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempt to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This is the message of the faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's word. I think most of you are familiar with the story of the Exodus. And some of you in the room are old enough to have seen the Charlton Heston movie. You remember that God brought people out of Egypt. He freed them from bondage. But have you ever stopped And to ask yourself, have you ever stopped to think about the fact that there were likely some people, Hebrew people, who stayed behind? Who who said, you know, I I don't want to listen to Moses. I don't don't think I believe that. I don't think I trust that. I'm just not going to have any of it. I don't want to to obey. Knowing difficult and stubborn people today, I think it's highly likely that there were probably some difficult and stubborn people back then, especially when it comes to matters of God and trusting in God. Can you see this happening? Am I, am I the only one who thinks maybe some people are like, eh, I'm going to stay back here? I, I think that happened. It's sad, but I think it happened. And I know that it was happening in Paul's day when he wrote Romans. 
When he wrote this letter, there was a massive number of these same people, these Israelites, these Jewish people who were just stubbornly saying, no, thank you. I'm staying back. I'm not having any of that. They were digging in their heels. And it certainly wasn't the first time in the story of the Bible. I mean, we see it in the Exodus. We see it all over the place, over and over and over again. They did not understand how God was working to bring his kingdom into its final glory. They just didn't get it. Romans 9, chapter 9 through chapter 11 is about God choosing a people and people rejecting God. It's about God keeping his promises every single time while people seem to fail him every single time. It's about God's glory by God's power fulfilling God's promises because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. That's what this section of scripture is about. This section of Romans is showing us how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together and how they relate and how this whole thing is one big story. In these three chapters of the book of Romans... Paul directly quotes from the Old Testament 26 times. And he alludes to the Old Testament and the themes and the ideas of the Old Testament many, many, many more times. He directly quotes from these books. Ready? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, and Malachi. In three chapters of the book of Romans. Whoa. It's all just kind of packed right in there. Paul also in those three chapters, shows us how God's chosen people, Israel, relate to God's chosen people, the church, and how he's working in redemption. But above all these things, above all that stuff, he gives us three contiguous chapters in the Bible that explain the gospel more than any other three chapters anywhere. That's what we have in Romans 9 through 11. I would highly encourage you to just keep working through it, meditate on it, read it, I've been working in this quite a bit in preparation for these chapters. And so now we hit Romans 10, verses 1 through 13, and Paul makes it very clear here that salvation has always come by faith. It's always come by, nothing has changed. And it's come by the way of a very specific message. The gospel message, the good news message, has always been that way from start to finish. Romans 10, 6 says, the righteousness that comes by faith speaks. It speaks. Paul is assuming here and arguing and showing us that God has always spoken the same message. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Salvation for the Israelites, for the Jewish people that he's concerned about, for even us today, comes by hearing and believing the message that God has given us and then submitting and surrendering our lives to it. From beginning to end, the whole story of the Bible makes this same declaration. Now, the problem with, with what was going on in Paul's day is the Jewish people, the chief priests, the, the religious leaders, all these people, they didn't understand what God was doing in that moment to bring about the kingdom. They were totally confused, and we see it just sort of play out in Jesus' ministry. It's why they didn't understand the triumphal entry. We've talked about that. It's why they were so confused. And they just kept stumbling again and again and again because they didn't see the big picture. They didn't see how God was working. They didn't see what was going on. And so they have this reoccurring narrative of living for the moment, desiring the things in that instant rather than the bigger things of what God is doing. And because of that, they failed to see how God was fulfilling and keeping his promises. 
They just didn't get it. And then they ended up kind of twisting up the message of salvation to try to make it fit and to try to make sense of it. They just missed it over and over and over and over again. And then Paul's saying, look, you're missing it again. You're so short-sighted. You're unwilling to, to possibly consider there's something more going on than what you think is going on. And they just kept rejecting him and threatening him. At one point, he had to be lowered out of a wall in a basket. I mean, his life was in jeopardy. And yet, these people who just kept rejecting God, he just kept preaching the gospel. All right, He just kept doing it. He kept saying, this is the message. He stood on it. He believed it. There's not much different going on then than there is now. We live in similar circumstances, so I think it's important that we understand the big picture of the Bible, that we don't miss it for the moment, that we understand there's more going on here. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to show you God's big plan through a particular theme, a particular narrative that runs all the way from the beginning to the end of the Bible. We could do this lots of different ways, but I think this one's a very helpful way. We could do it with covenants. We could do it with all sorts of promises, but I want to do it through a kingdom narrative. I want to just show you the kingdom thread from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible and see if that would help us to understand how God is working and and what he's doing just through that particular lane. Okay, I want to show you, like Paul is, is trying to show us in this section of Romans, that God has been working and is working and will be working to bring about the salvation of his people. And it's been the same work just in, in little different seasons of the kingdom. And when we understand that, it makes it easier for us to, to not live for the moment, but live for the big picture. That's my goal. That's my goal. Now, before I even do that, I need to uh, give credit where credit is due. I greatly appreciate um, Vaughn Roberts, his uh, uh, theologian, a writer, and, uh, and a preacher. And he managed to take a very popular... Um, book by Graham Goldsworthy about this kingdom narrative and actually alliterate it and make it a lot simpler because Graham Goldsworthy's book is a lot more complicated. So I'm really thankful for a guy who sort of brought it down to a level I think I could handle. Um, I don't typically do alliterations, like where the start of everything starts with the same letter, because I'm just not very creative. Uh, They're supposed to be really memorable to have those things, and I hope it will be memorable today, but I'm going to borrow his alliterations because he has eight, excuse me, he has seven fantastic headings that all start with the letter P and then he has one that's mediocre that I think I could edit. But other than those other things, I don't think I could do better than Graham's Goldworthy and and Von Roberts. So I'm going to borrow their material, at least their outline, to sort of give us an overview of the big picture narrative of the Bible, um, of the kingdom, so that we can see where what Paul's saying fits and we can see how it works for us. So uh, also before I do that, if I'm going to go fast through this for the sake of time, these two books will help do the same thing. They don't necessarily do a kingdom narrative, but this particular one uses a rescuer narrative. And you see it from start to finish. And I think this one uses basically a victory narrative from start to finish, right? So you can see how that works. These are great themes that help us understand how the Bible fits together. If you've not read this, adults, you should read this. It makes me cry like a baby every time. This one is fantastic too. I just want to encourage you to understand the big picture of the Bible. Okay, here we go. Eight headings. Oh, by the way, I forgot this. I'm editing as I'm going, and I'm jumping over stuff. Uh, Vaughn Roberts also came up with a beautiful way to understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, and even those start with the letter P. So even in this outline, I ran across those. He says the Old Testament is is Christ promised, 
and the New Testament is Christ proclaimed. I'm like, that's a great way to just, that's really helpful. Anyway, here we go. Whole bunch of letter P's. You note takers, this is your day. First, we have the pattern of the kingdom. The pattern of the kingdom. This is the Garden of Eden. This is what the king created, where he would dwell, and it was exactly how it should be. It's God's kingdom. God was the king. He created a people. He gave them just one rule, and it's funny. We balk at rules, but the rule was to protect them, and they still decided that they knew best, right? One rule. The place was perfect. Everything was wonderful. It was the pattern of the kingdom, all as it should be, and it did not last very long, unfortunately, because they'd violated that rule, which then ushers us right away, right off the bat, into the next season of the kingdom, which he called the perished kingdom. I didn't really like the word perished. I thought perverted kingdom would be a little bit better word. Not in the weird way, but like it's messed up and it's wrong, right? This is the fall. This is the season of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, he said. It's the fall. This is where God's people rejected God's one rule. They had one rule to keep them safe, and they just broke it. But they didn't just break it. I think we're confused when we think they just broke the rule. It wasn't that they were just accidental rule breakers, or they just sort of did this because they thought it would be interesting and fun. It wasn't that at all. At the very heart of it, they wanted to make the rules. They wanted to write the story themselves. They wanted to reject the king, reject the lawgiver, because they thought they could know best. Isn't that the temptation? You will know good and evil. Well, God already knows what's good. You don't need to know what's evil. No, no, no. We want to know for ourselves so we can become the new rule makers. Well, that didn't go very well for them. Rejecting the king, treason, broke everything. It shattered everything. It perverted everything. The pattern is messed up. And God says, look, the relationship's broke. I've got to cast you out. Here's a curse. Here's all the ramifications of your decision. And now you know good and evil, don't you? (laughs) Bummer. But he said in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a rescuer, a savior. He would make the broken things right again. He would fix it. And so then as we keep reading through our Bible a little bit, we start to see how this is playing out, what's kind of happening. And it leads us into, it ushers us into the next season called the promised kingdom. The promised kingdom. This is where God calls a people for himself again. And he makes to this person, Abraham, some promises in Genesis 12. Right? In the, in the kindness of God and in the grace of God, he reveals himself, he doesn't have to, to Abraham. He tells Abraham what he's going to do. He makes these promises. And most significantly, the way you can summarize those promises the very best Genesis 12, as that he would be their God and they would be his people. And it's amazing. And if you don't pick up on the promises of Genesis 12, you really will not understand the entire rest of the Bible or what God is doing throughout the whole thing. You could say this is really where the real impetus of the story is really kicking up. God made very specific promises. Now it's interesting in the New Testament, way out here in the New Testament, Galatians 3.14 says, The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham, these promises, the purpose of the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians is telling us the promises in, in Genesis 12 are the gospel. 
And they run throughout the entirety of the Bible, and there was a purpose into them that all the nations would receive the Savior, Jesus Christ. Galatians is telling us that's what the reason was for the promises in Genesis 12. God all along had Jews and Gentiles and salvation in mind. God said through one man, Abraham, he's going to bless the nation. And then in a much greater way through one man, he's going to bless all the nations for salvation. And this was the plan from the very beginning. Jesus Christ was in mind from the start. And what about salvation back then? What about Abraham? How did he get saved? Well, he didn't do anything to earn his righteousness. We're told in Genesis 15, 6, and also incidentally in Galatians 3, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith came through belief, not works. There was nothing that Abraham could have done to earn the favor of the king. The king gave Abraham his grace, and that was all the way back in Genesis. The same way we're saved today. Not what the, not what the people Paul was writing to thought. They had to do a bunch of stuff. Paul will say, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. You're missing the story. Right? Salvation is by grace through faith, and Abraham was saved this way. And we start to see... This sort of going along with these promises, and it takes us now into the next one, number four, the partial kingdom. It's the the partial kingdom. It's not completely fulfilled yet, but it's starting to be fulfilled in part. And so time goes on, and God starts to fulfill his promises. So God's people start to grow. They become numerous. And, And by God's sovereignty, they end up in Egypt. God works all the pieces to grow his people, to equip his people, to prepare his people as he's fulfilling the promises. Part of fulfilling the promises was to send them into Egypt. And then God brings them out of Egypt and he saves them. And he says, look, I'm building my kingdom on this. Here we go. Here we go. I'm drawing you out to do a magnificent thing. Incidentally, he also drew Jesus out of Egypt to show us a bigger picture of Christ. The story just kind of keeps repeating itself in bigger and bigger magnitude. And by the way, to get him out of Egypt, he showed them this Passover lamb, which is Christ on the cross when we see it repeated in larger magnitude. The salvation that God did there, he's showing us here. And after God saved them out of Egypt, he gave them the law. But he gave them the law after he saved them. Salvation came first. Then he gave them the kingdom ethic. Then he said, this is how you're going to live as a saved people. Right, and over time... They eventually entered the promised land. Yay, he promised for this, and here they are. And in the promised land, they would be faced with many temptations. Would they surrender and follow the Lord, or would they fall to the, to the temptations? Just like Adam when he was in the promised land in the pattern. Adam failed. They failed. Wasn't so good. Incidentally, Jesus was called out of Egypt into the wilderness to face temptations just like them. See, it's just growing in greater and greater magnitude. And then as it turns out, they would need a king when they came into the land. They they have the promised land. They need this king. And at least since God gave them the law, he always intended for them to have a human king in the promised land. I didn't used to think that was the case. I always thought, oh, they wanted a king like everyone around them. Oh, they're in sin because they want a king. But Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, when you enter the land, he's giving them instruction. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you to take, or you take possession of it, live in it, and say, this is what God's telling them to say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. Oh, wow. I used to think they were wrong for wanting a king like the nations around them. But wait a minute, something didn't go right. They did what they were commanded to do, kind of, 
Saul came. It was bad. What went wrong? Well, let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 15. So first and 14, you need to have a king appointed over you. But then verse 15 says, you are to appoint over you the king God chooses. Oh, oh, just like Adam and Eve thought they knew best, the people thought they knew best, they wanted to appoint a king of their choosing, who was a really tall guy, and he was a terrible choice, frankly. But it was just to show them, once again, trust the Lord. Why would God want a human king? Well, because he's got a human king coming, a better, more perfect human king. He has a plan. The king will be Jesus. There's a line being created. There's an idea that we will have a human and God king. This has been the plan the whole time. And then finally, he says, look, I want you to build a temple because I can't dwell with you in this way. I need to have a temple where there's a, there's a mediatorial practice, there's, there's priests, there's things that have to happen so that we can have a relationship. So when they got into the land, they built a temple. And then they just started holding on to the, the rites and the rituals of the temple, and they still kept sinning. And they still kept running away, and they just thought, well, we have a temple, everything's fine, whatever. And they didn't realize that the temple wasn't the means of their salvation. It was the way they could have a relationship with God. And so they just kept sinning, and they just kept misunderstanding it, and they didn't understand what God was doing to fulfill his promises, and it was just all broken. And it was bad again. And it just seemed to keep repeating the same cycle, which brings us into the prophesied kingdom. Number five, the prophesied kingdom. Now, this is interesting. You, when you read the whole narrative of the Old Testament, you're just kind of trucking along. All of a sudden, you get to all these prophets, and they all seem to be saying really the same thing. A lot of people think the prophets are just about telling the future. They do a heap ton more foretelling than they do foretelling. They're talking about what is in the moment a lot. Kind of goes like this. The prophets say, hey, don't rebel against God. Oh, you are. What in the world? Hey, God said we should do this. Oh, you're doing it. Hey, if you keep doing this, you're going to get in trouble. Hey, if you keep doing this, you're going to upset God. Hey, repent. Hey, repent. Hey, repent. What are you doing? Hello? Come on, people. This is going to be bad. If you keep doing this, there's going to be judgment. This is the prophets. And then they say, look, it used to be like this. Look how good this was. And they kind of point backwards. And they say, but if you keep doing this, you're not going to get what's better to come. And then they give us some prophetic statement about the hope that's to come. It wasn't news. It wasn't new. There was always this idea that hope was coming and that there was going to be a fulfillment of the promises. They're just being reminded of this by the prophets. So they're saying, look, there's hope. And then there was a civil war. The kingdom split up. So then the northern kingdom gets wiped out. And then the southern kingdom ends up hauled off to Babylon in exile. Wait, like... Wait, like getting kicked out of the garden all over again? Yeah. Wait, like getting hauled off into Egypt again? Yeah. This story just keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? And they're just not seeing how God is working and what he's doing to fulfill the promises. And so now they're off in Babylon. Is God going to come through? Is God going to fulfill his promises? And we go, of course he is. But really, is he? Should he? How many times have we done this? Over and over and over and over and over again. Should he really fulfill his promises? Heck no. He said he wasn't going to flood the earth. Like, okay, burn the earth, start over, scrape and rebuild. He doesn't do that. He's fulfilling his promises. The question is, what's going to happen? Are his promises going to come true? And then there's 400 years where he doesn't speak. We call them the quiet years. In your, in your Bible, it's the one single page in between your New Testament and your Old Testament, I heard somebody say, we should just rip that out because it is just one story. We shouldn't have an old and a new. It's just one big thing, right? I'm like, that's, that's a fair point. Don't rip out our church Bible pages. 
We're waiting. We're trying to find out. The leaders in Paul's day are watching for the Messiah. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and it brings in, it ushers in the present kingdom. The present kingdom. I'm going to quickly show you this through just some verses. I'm going to kind of paraphrase them. But in Matthew's gospel, the opening says this, verse 1, 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, that's the fulfillment of the earthly king. The son of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promises. That's the opening of the book. The fulfillment of the promises are here. He's here. Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark are that Jesus came proclaiming the good news of God, saying, here's here's what he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's Mark 1.15. In Luke, listen to this, an angel shows up to tell Mary that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. That's a big day. Angel says this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The gospel's open, and we could go through more for the sake of time. Open, saying the kingdom has come. It's happening. The kingdom of God is here. It's near. Jesus says this repeatedly. It's here. It's close to you. It's come. The present kingdom. The king marches into the city. They reject him. All this stuff. That's the, the present kingdom. That which was patterned and promised and prophesied is here. It is when the kingdom is here that the most shocking thing happens. The king... The victor fulfills what was promised by dying on a cross. What in the world? But praise the Lord, on the third day, raised from the grave. Victorious. The king is victorious in all the ways we'd never suspect. Wow, what an amazing king. Everything what God was doing from Genesis to that moment was leading up to this cross, to this victory to this work, it's how the promises are being fulfilled. And here's what's really cool. We get to go out when the king is marching up to the city. We get to go out and get in the, get in the parade. We get to march with him as victors as if we had something to do with it, but we didn't have anything to do with it. But we get to be out there with him coming into the city. How cool is that? That's what God's doing. But the Jewish people of Paul's day in this present kingdom... Excuse me, not in the present kingdom. We're almost there. The Jewish people in Paul's day in the present kingdom decided they didn't like the king. They did not like the king. They didn't want to be told what to do. They thought they knew best. They wanted to be the rule makers. And so they thought they would just kill the king. Let's kill Jesus. That'll put an end to it. They said, we have no king but Caesar. That's John 19, 15. They rejected the king. They were face to face with the king and they rebelled against him. Which brings us now, after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, he ascends to the number seven proclaimed kingdom. And by the way, that's what we're living in right now. This is the season we're in, the proclaimed kingdom. So right before 
Jesus ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father. He commissions his disciples to go as his ambassadors to proclaim this message to all the world, and he equips them by filling them with the Holy Spirit. And he says, we're going to do this, and this is how my kingdom is going to come. We're going to usher this whole thing in. This is how Jesus promises. It's God's promises in Genesis 12. We're going to ultimately be fulfilled. It's part of the continual working. It's what the guys in Jerusalem that Paul was speaking to, and Rome, and all these Jewish people were rejecting. They just didn't want to have anything to do with this. Paul kept preaching to them. He believed God was who he says he was, and his word is true, so he proclaimed the word, even though they were rejecting him and threatening him. He said, I'm just going to keep preaching. I'm just going to do it. That's how he saw it coming. You know why? That's the season of the kingdom we're in, because he's an ambassador of God. And then he does this, and it's it's really fascinating. I hope you guys are okay. I'm going to go a little bit late. We get to Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 16. If you want to turn there and read with me, that's what he quotes in his letter in Romans to make his appeal to these people how they get saved. I know some of you are still working there, but I'm just going to read it quick. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. This command I give to you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. He's talking about... All he's been doing. It is not in the heavens so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven to get it for us. This is what Paul was talking about. And proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. It's nothing special, no special revelation in this way, no mystery, no secret. Verse 14, but the message is very near you in your mouth, and in your heart, so that you may follow it. That was said in Deuteronomy. Paul is appealing to them in Romans. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's right here. You're just rejecting. You're just not having it. How about that? It's the same message then as it is now. It's the same one Paul was preaching. It's the same one we're called to preach and go out and be ambassadors. And Paul wants the message to be as clear as he can be, so there's no doubt whatsoever. So now we go back to Romans 10. We look at the last part of what we read. This is his clarification exactly on what the message is. He says in verse 8, The message is near you and in your mouth and heart. This is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the message. Same message. From Genesis to Revelation, same message today in the proclaimed kingdom. The message of salvation comes by faith. The righteousness of faith speaks. Do you hear it? Do you hear what it says? Is God opening your ears to hear? If you are hearing the message, if you're thinking, wait a minute, God might be calling me. Does God keep his promises? Yes, I think he does. Is he going to keep his promises to me? Yes, I think he could say, if you're hearing this, you need to know something. You're sitting in a room with a whole bunch of commissioned ambassadors of the kingdom who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who would love to tell you more about the message. Hey, can you tell me more about the righteousness that speaks? Can you help me understand? Or come talk to me. We want to talk with you. We don't want you to be like the, the Jewish people who are rejecting Jesus that Paul was so concerned about. Praise the Lord. There's hope for the people who reject. There's an opportunity before they die, before Jesus comes back to hear the gospel just one more time. Just one more time. Some of you maybe heard it 30 and 40 times. These people have been rejecting it over and over. There's a chance here. Hear the message. I think 
you should become a kingdom citizen. What kind of ambassador of the king would I be if I didn't think that? You should become a kingdom citizen. The alternative is not so great. Paul was concerned for them. They didn't see the big picture. They didn't understand it. They didn't see that God was fulfilling his promises, but it wasn't in the immediate gratification of the moment. Something else going on. We live among people just like that. What did Paul do? He preached the gospel. What are we called to do? Preach the gospel. Why is it so important that people should hear the gospel and get saved? What's the big deal? Why would anybody want to be a kingdom citizen? Well, a lot of the people in our world today will throw out a whole long list of things. You can have community, and it's good for our city, and and you can make friends, and all those things are possibly good things that Christ will do, but they're all downstream from the truth of the gospel. Here's what's at the source. It's number eight, the perfected kingdom. That's what this is all about. That's the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. Jesus is coming back, and Jesus will march into his kingdom with all those people who didn't do anything but are celebrating with him in tow, all of us, if you're one of his people, to celebrate his kingdom. And Jesus will make right everything the fall made wrong. He will redeem all of it. He'll be the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. And nobody, none of us in creation have ever experienced what it was supposed to be like. We've always lived in the brokenness of all this story. But if you're his, if you're in that procession marching in, you will get to experience what it was supposed to be. You will get to experience it. You will get to enjoy it. And you will get to enjoy God forever. Let me tell you what happens in Revelation 21, 22. It says there's no temple in the kingdom. Why? The whole place is God's temple. We get to be with him without any barriers, without any problems. It was just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Then Revelation 21, 3 says, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be their God. Wait, we've heard that before. In Genesis 12. Whoa, it's fulfilled in Revelation 21. Woohoo! Jesus is bringing about the fulfillment of all the promises that we've been reading about for thousands of years. Think about the curse at the fall. Death, pain, toil. That's the beginning of the story. Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. God is making all the broken things right. Why do you want to be a Christian? Because you don't want to miss that. When Jesus comes back, he's going to gather all, first of all, all the people who've ever lived will be gathered together at the final judgment. And Jesus is going to take his people from the crowd. It'd be like a shepherd who calls out to a sheep. They'll recognize his voice and say, oh, I'm going to follow that one. And he's going to call them out of that group. And they're going to follow him. And where are they going to follow him? They're going to march in that victory procession with him into his kingdom forever. It'll be as if they know him and he knows them. And altogether, they're going to go into the perfected kingdom. They don't deserve to go. 
Nobody, none of us will deserve to be in that procession with Jesus. But he says, if you will just believe he is who he says he is and trust his ways and follow him, you get to be a part. You get to go to this perfected kingdom. And he gets to be your king. He gets to be our king. Why would anybody want to be a kingdom citizen? That's why. I don't want to miss that. I want to see it and experience it and enjoy it and worship Jesus the king forever in that. I want to be a part. That's what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And I sure hope this morning, Lord, I pray that when the message of the righteousness of faith speaks, you hear. And you follow Jesus. Then one day we will together be in that celebration, marching into the kingdom of glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for this whole story. Help us to see the connections. Help us to see how it works. For those who don't know the story, help them to to read their Bible or read one of these other books. Lord, help us to see what you're doing so we don't miss what's happening in this instant for what you're doing in the big picture and you've been always doing. Please don't let us miss salvation. Please don't let us miss the opportunity to be your ambassador and proclaim the goodness and wonder and glory of your gospel. Lord, save our loved ones and our friends, Lord, anybody in this room, Lord, we want to be in this perfected kingdom. Don't let us miss it. God, thank you for Jesus, the king who would die for his subjects and be victorious, the king who would let us march in the victory parade when we've contributed zero to the victory, king who would share such a beautiful thing with us. Lord, it's my prayer. Every one of us would get to enjoy Jesus forever in the perfected kingdom. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.